Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Hey friends, I've got a great conversation in store for you. I have my friends and colleagues, Marissa and Lisa here today. So ladies, will you please start by sharing your first and last names and your pronouns? Marissa, you can go first, even though I just said your name. Hey everyone, my name is Marissa Martino and my pronouns are she, her. Thank you. And Lisa? Hi everybody, my name's Lisa Mullinax and my pronouns are she, her. So today we are talking about something that came up organically in conversation between the three of us, which is kind of this recipe-based education that is available to dog trainers, that it, that tends to be the type of education that we receive, whether we go to school or whether we read books or look to the internet, et cetera. Recipes are everywhere. And there are certainly problems with that, but there's also good things about that. So, um, Marissa, do you want to talk about what is not that bad about having recipes? Yeah, I think when we're talking about recipes, we're talking about specific processes or protocols that we use that are, I mean, some of them are like passed down from generation to generation and, um, the benefit of that as a new learner is it helps you understand like, okay, if I have this particular situation, I use this particular protocol to get this particular outcome, right? Like when you're, when you're learning something new, it is, it is nice to have that broken down so that you understand which ingredients to choose from when you are um, creating a training plan. That's one one reason why I think a lot of novice or new trainers um, really gravitate towards protocols because it's 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 really easy for them to wrap their minds around um, what the change could look like and what they're what they're supposed to do, what their responsibility as a trainer is in that moment. That's one benefit I can see. Yeah, and. I think that that's so real. And since we are talking about it as recipes, I'm just going to bring in the metaphor that will come up again and again, Mm -hmm. which is that it's not different from learning to cook, right? So if you're following a book of recipes, you know what the outcome is that you can expect and you can kind of roughly follow this outline. And dog training can look like that. It can look like 
essentially can feel like a book of recipes. Um, Lisa, do you have anything you want to add on what's positive about recipes or even take us in another direction? Yeah, I mean, I think for the the newer trainer, recipes are helpful because they do spark new ideas. They give us new new ideas that we may not have tried before. And certainly I've come away from my fair share of um, seminars and conferences with new ideas because someone presented a recipe. And I also think that those recipes are important for our clients because they they don't want to be dog trainers, most of them. Mm -hmm. They don't want to learn all of the pieces. They just want to know what to do. For sure. And I think it's so important for us to kind of never forget that as we're, as we're working with them and maybe as we move beyond recipes ourselves. But to me, there's, there's a core issue here that I think is not talked about enough. And I'm going to bring food back into it because we all know I love food. I mean, that's just this reality. And I also really like cooking. So this is a metaphor that works for me on a lot of levels, but if I am following a recipe, but I literally know nothing. So if I don't understand some basic tenets of what makes food good, and I'm trying to follow the recipe, I may be less successful Mm -hmm. than a person following a recipe who does understand how to make food taste good. So if I'm a dog trainer, and I don't have a solid background in the basics, and I'm just learning recipes, then what I can actually do and how I can actually apply these recipes is limited. I know that's how I learned. Like, I want to hear from both of you. Like, I learned recipes before I learned basic tenets of dog training. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I learned basic tenets, but I do feel like I learned basic principles of dog training and behavior modification, but then I also learned it next to a bunch of flow charts. Like if the dog does this and you do this, and if it doesn't do this and you do this and and like that to me becomes part of the recipe. So I'm, I'm just focusing on what the dog is doing and not like Mm -hmm. the entire environment. I think that's why Susan Friedman's course really exploded my brain a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, I definitely learned, I learned those principles, but they even, even how I was taught, it was like, I learned them with an example. And that example was the recipe. Like if that, it <laughs> sure. So it was if that makes teaching sense. you the tenets via the recipe. So it was like, if I opened a right. cookbook and it said, um, the, there actually is. So there's a cookbook that I have that does that. So it has these sections and it goes through like these basic tenets of cooking. And like, it has recipe examples that show you how to highlight, like that highlight those things for you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's probably the best that's being done right now in like trainer education. And you do have a formal education in it where, yeah, they were like, so here's a principle and now here's a recipe that reflects that principle. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And I think I think we should even back up a moment and just define what some of those recipes, like some of the examples that we were talking about, so that folks that are listening can 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 have a visual of like what is a recipe? Like what are we even talking about? Um, because we had some we had some good ones. Yeah, Lisa, do you want to start with just 
the one that brought that brought this conversation to life for us. Absolutely. I think the the one that came up for me and that, you know, the longer I've been doing this, the more I've questioned is it doesn't matter what article you read online that is about dogs having a fear of fireworks. Every single one of them will talk about buying a CD. Well, okay. In the olden days, it was talked about buying a CD. Now it talks about, you know, finding firework sounds on uh, YouTube and playing those at a low level while giving your dog treats and then, you know, gradually increasing the sound, the volume of the fireworks and bringing in different sounds to use those online sounds to counter condition dogs to that noise. And we're, I think what you just kind of described is more utilizing the desensitization piece. So slowly raising that volume, but Mm -hmm. we also discussed counter conditioning with food. So like there is a firework. Yep. And then I feed you. Yep. We've all heard, I mean, that's kind of the basic recipe for what we call classical counter conditioning is just the thing happens, the trigger, and then I give you something you like. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's one of the early recipes, like one of the first recipes that you might hear of or learn as a dog trainer. And then I don't know about y'all, but reality strikes when you try to go do that. (laughs) Yeah. When you try to go put that to work for the first time. I remember being so frustrated that I couldn't make this work. Right. The dog wasn't getting better. Right. And I think because that basic recipe fails to tell us how many other factors are involved. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you have some killer sound system in your house, <laughs> you're never going to be able to get that those fireworks sound up to the intensity that they can be when people are setting off fire firecrackers right outside your door or, right. you know. And where- it doesn't talk about that piece that people like to pretend isn't real, which is that if you're under, if you're, if you embark on this plan, this counter conditioning and desensitization plan, the dog really needs to not encounter the trigger at triggering levels otherwise. Right. And then how often is that real life? Rarely. Depends on where you live. (laughs) Depends on where you live and depends on if it's fireworks or if it's thunderstorms or, you know, whatever triggering thing that might show up. And I think if you understand some basics that are, you know, it's what Ken Ramirez is always saying that Mm -hmm. great training, excellent training is actually just the basics being done very well. Yep. Yep. If you understand the basics before you learn the recipes, or even just, you know, most of us went backwards, most of us learned some recipes and then went back and learned the tenets, then you can actually make those recipes work. Sure. Because they exist for a reason, right? It's yeah. not that, you know, somebody just thought, well, I'll give cookies after fireworks and that'll be fine. Like, no, there's actual stuff to back that up, right? <laughs> there's actual data. <laughs> if you don't understand nuance or or just these kind of basic tenets that we're going to get into, you may not, you may not get it. So one of the metaphors that kind of came up um, when we were planning for this conversation was if I'm reading a recipe and it calls for lemon but I don't have a lemon. If I don't know the basic tenets of what makes food good, 
if I don't understand that the acid component helps make food good, then I will just leave lemon out. Like I will just go, well, whatever and leave the lemon out. I'll go, I don't understand why it has lemon in it anyway. Right. <laughs> like I'll just, <laughs> it's pasta. Why is there lemon? Right. And if, but if I understand that what the recipe really requires is just an acid component, then I can look at what else I have. And I might actually be able to bring acid to the dish without the lemon. Right. And I, if that's getting, I am kind of famous for long-winded metaphors that stop making sense at some point so (laughs) that's why you guys are here to stop it if it starts to happen well I don't really know how to cook so I'm leaning on (laughs) both of you Bruce is like coming over to Sarah's we're gonna I'll bring lemon I don't know though what she's gonna do with it well and and I I mean I think I think like another another like analogy would be you're trying to get to someone's house for the first time and they've written down instructions well these days they texted you instructions they said right? these days they sent you the google map location but yeah you're you're messing up my metaphor <laughs> um <laughs> or my analogy or whatever um no but so they've written you have these written instructions and you're following them and then you get to one of the turns you're supposed to make and that road is closed mm. uh. If you know where you are, you can still get there. Right. But if not, you're not going anywhere. You don't know how to fix it. And I think that can happen with training recipes. And it Mm. certainly happened to me plenty of times in my career. I'm following a recipe and the dog says, "Um, yeah, that's not going to work for me. Right. And then I'm thinking, you know, I I don't know what else to do. And that's even happened to me when I was taking a class from a Mm. trainer many, many moons ago, it was an agility class. And the trainer had us working on two on two off, right? Putting the the back feet on to um, the end of the ramp thingy. I'm like super into agility. Um, (laughs) I love you so much. (laughs) You know, putting the feet on the ramp thingy as you do in agility. Yeah, everyone knows what you're talking about. You're good. I mean, Marissa might not, but we're, you're good. <laughs> My listeners know what you're talking about. Right. So so the way that the, the instructor was teaching everyone was to basically like use a food lure to push the dog backwards into oh, the contact. Position. Yeah. And my border collie, Parker, was not getting it. He was like, there's something in my way. I'll just move my, my feet out of the way. And when I asked the instructor for assistance, their response was to just keep trying. Right. So they had a recipe and that recipe probably worked for most of the dogs they were trying it with. Mm -hmm. But then when they ran into that situation where it wasn't working, they didn't have any other tools to help me. Yeah. And truly, if we talk about where recipes are almost most put to use it is in those group training situations right yes yeah right this is how we're going to teach you this particular behavior this is how we're going to teach you down this right like it's all about this is the game we're playing this is the recipe i'm teaching you right and a really skilled trainer instructor will probably have a couple of pivots for you if it doesn't work but they're not going to have 
they, you know, it's not actually their job to have like 20 different pivots. It's not their job to have a different lesson plan for every single person in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's dive in and talk about what these basics are. So like with food, there are kind of basic qualities that make food taste good with dogs. We feel like there are some basic things that too many of us learn in practice. Too many of us learn after the fact, right? Too many of us learn 10 years later and we look back on that case and we're like, if I knew this for that dog, would things look different? So Which many that's times. a whole other podcast. That's a whole other. Yeah, so <laughs> right. many things. Like, so, oh my right. goodness, talk about. But so let's dive in on the first one, which is we are trainers who primarily employ positive reinforcement. That is who we are. Yes. And so we need to talk about that. We need to talk about the fact that positive reinforcement is a complex, nuanced force in the world. It is not a method. It is it in it in and of itself not a recipe. Absolutely. Yeah. But, and it's funny, but when I, I, like, I'm just thinking back to when I went to the Academy in person forever ago, I'm just like, you just mark and reinforce. Like how hard could that be? Like, I I just remember thinking it was, oh yeah. So simple. Click and treat. So simple. Just just positive reinforcement. I use positive reinforcement. I want to be positive and I I want, I want, I want to motivate behavior and yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like I just, I remember feeling like it was so simple and I think it's interesting that you say that Sarah, it's like, it's like, wow, how can like 14 years later, I'm still being like, oh, wow, my mechanics are screwing this up or like, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't set up the environment just so, so that I could get the behavior I'm looking for. Like I'm still learning now. And so it's, it's, and yet it's just positive reinforcement. You just mark and right. reinforce, right? right. Like right. it's because positive reinforcement is just, you add something to the environment. Yeah. And the behavior happens more. Yep. That's simple. That's, that's what it is, which means that it could be, you know, that I added, you know, it could be that I added a little squeaky toy situation and the dog, you know, runs off playing with it and our session is over but the next time we engage the session that behavior happens first Mm -hmm. but i don't know if positive reinforcement occurred until i look at my behavior and i look at my behavior trend if it's happening in an upward trend then yes right right Mm -hmm. so i think that's kind of one big thing i think too often people think of positive reinforcement as a method when it is a it is a principle of learning theory. It is a quadrant of operant conditioning. It is not a recipe or method that we follow. So then let's talk about those, some of these pieces, some of these nuanced pieces that we learned later. Uh, Lisa, you want to dive in on one of those? Absolutely. I think um, one of the first ones that I think really changed me as a trainer was um, you know, I'd learned the sort of the theory of um, reinforcement schedules, right? Like when we're learning the quadrants, we're mm. also learning, you know, we're reading in the books about reinforcement schedules and all of that. But I think um, for me, one of the things that really unlocked 
a lot of the power of positive reinforcement when working with different dogs is understanding how the rate of reinforcement makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a huge difference. Right. Like if you, if you look at a session and you break down what the rate was, like, if you actually look at, this is the number of seconds I trained and this is the number of times I reinforced behavior, um, or I delivered reinforcement, you will so often uncover that that's the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you hold, so I talk a lot about core values and I hold a high rate of positive reinforcement as a core value in my dog training. It's not just something that I know makes things work better. It's a value for me because then I know by definition, my animal is in an environment rich with positive reinforcement, which is a core value for me in living with dogs. Mm -hmm. And so if I put you in a training situation, behavior modification is inherently invasive. So I am invading upon your choices in your life. So then it's on me to make sure that the environment I provide is rich with positive reinforcement. But then how often, I mean, it's, it's like a value and like a nice thing, but then also you can actually just break down the session, look at number of reps and number of reinforced reps Mm -hmm. and find out that if you, that you need to make some changes to increase that rate. Yeah. And, and especially working with, uh, pet parents, right? Like their rate is always so low. You know um, that it is just by looking at how much food they bring to the session. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or if they you even know bring how much food. they're expecting to feed. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm always to... like pack your treat bag and then times three. <laughs> right. I so know. Yeah. I, walk. I walked in one of the last, um, group dog training classes I ever took. Um, a few years ago with Felix, who took a control and leash class that was local. And it was so funny because I'm walking in, I've got a bait bag on. Actually, I'm pretty sure I had a vest on, like a training vest on and had like toys in the back, food in the front. Like, and then I also walked in with like a court thing, like full of chopped delights. There was like layers of like cheese and hot dogs and fresh pet and like whatever. And People are looking at me as I'm walking in with like my tub of food. Oh my gosh. Hilarious. And they've literally got like their one little baby bag there. from PetSmart on. That's probably full of like, I don't know, milk bone chunks right. like there. And it's like, is a stark contrast. And like, I'm just expecting to use a ton of food in this class. Yeah. Yeah. And if I don't use it all fine, but I do not want to run out. That's the joke marine mammal trainer joke is like you only run out of fish once <laughs> yeah, yeah right that has always stuck with me you well, do not run out of fish <laughs> it's funny because i i as you bring up marine mammal trainers i'm thinking of amy and i'm thinking of her amazing that video of her training yep. chickens and her amazing uh, rate of reinforcement my friend amy bonane who's got yeah. a a video give her a huge her shout at, out her at chicken camp um she's a machine when i machine. think high rate of reinforcement she is the first person that comes to my mind oh yeah she's extremely skilled at it and mm-hmm. she is not just shoveling food yeah she right. is actually selecting reinforceable moments every freaking second 
and yes. building beautiful behavior. Yeah, it's really incredible yeah. to watch. And I think the the other thing that like with Amy, the first time I watched that video, well, first of all, the first time I watched one I'm of her videos, I video, was like apparently. gonna, mm-hmm. you know, um, I was gonna just like toss in my clicker. I was done. I was a crap trainer. I was never <laughs> Never going to be, never going to be like that. But the other piece, aside from the rate of reinforcement is her delivery. Delivery. Yeah. Yeah. It's so amazingly consistent and precise. Yeah. She is very, very good at that piece. And all really highly skilled trainers are good at that piece. So let's talk a little bit about delivery because this, they don't teach you this in school. I don't know a single school that is teaching you anything beyond click then treat like click then reach in the treat pouch like that's kind of basic mechanics of delivering food it goes so much further than that yeah it's like I remember it's it's we're so focused on like is your hand in the treat bag while you click while you mark it's like yeah I understand that that is important and yet like treat delivery to me feels like it's more incredibly it's it's I'm not going to say more because I think it's all important but actual delivery of food yes when I coach clients now I start there rather than yeah hands out of the tree Mm -hmm. pouch right Mm -hmm. I would say that the first time I really learned about that was Michelle Pouliot like she Mm. she talks about that all the time and um that was the first time it ever really like, I think it registered to me like subconsciously, but I, when I, when I watched her seminars and such, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. And I am doing that. And this is why that didn't work or something like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And Michelle, um, and I don't know, we'd have to ask her which came first. Did she figure that out through guide dog training or my guess is she figured it out in sports mm-hmm. because I learned about delivery early when I was learning sports. So, and nobody and talked about sense. it like that. Nobody talked about it like that. I right. was just told in learning competitive obedience, you want to reinforce perfect heel position, which means the dog needs to be eating when it's in perfect heel position. Do not mm-hmm. feed it in front of you. Mm-hmm. I learned that. I also learned, um, we'll talk about type in a second, but I think delivery is important. So like I learned, I also learned high energy versus low energy types of like feeding. And we weren't talking about markers. Our dogs had prong collars on. Right. But we still understood that if you want to inspire certain behaviors, you want to feed certain ways. Mm -hmm. And nobody is so funny because nobody talked about it as a principle. Everybody just did it. And everybody just knew that the best trainers with the best scores were doing it. So we all did. It continues to be just a huge part of how I work. Like, I need you to have very clean, meaning unencumbered. Like, it drives me nuts if you've got, like, your keychain dangling on your wrist or something and you're trying to feed. So unencumbered movement to the food, to the mouth, or to, or to wherever you're delivering the food to. And that goes so deep. I actually get... I even went, did a deep dive on this just a couple of years ago because a friend of mine frustratingly lamented to me after feeding one of my dogs a treat, why do all of your dogs take treats like that? 
And what she meant was they put your entire hand in their mouth and then they find the treat on the way back. And I, instead of being like, why do you feed me? I went, oh, why do they? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And so then I kind of did a deep dive on it and found out it's 100% just the way that I usually feed. Uh And I shifted the way that I feed. And my dogs are not sharky like that. I mean, Iggy still is. She's 12 and a half. She's done it for 10 years. So no one can give her a pass. Yeah, we can give her. I mean, she can do whatever she wants anyway. But um, it's, you know, I just, I get so dorky. I get so deep into it that I'm like, and specifically feed exactly like this. Right. And it does actually matter. It does actually make a Mm -hmm. difference. I think in situations where we're not even looking for the precision that is needed in dog sports, there are times that delivery can make a huge difference. And Marissa can attest to this too in shelter dogs. We're not, we're not looking for perfection, but there are times that the delivery of the treat is the way it's being delivered or where it's being delivered is creating problems with particular shelter dogs specifically with like jumping up and mouthing at hands and arms, one of the first things we're looking at changing is getting volunteers and staff to deliver treats by dropping them on the ground instead of feeding by hand so that all of that reinforcement is coming from the ground, mm-hmm. not from the hand. So we, so even though it's not any sort of precision And it's probably not perfect rates of reinforcement or anything like that. Just something as small as where we're delivering the treat can have that impact on behavior. Mm -hmm. Huge, right? And it's, you know, I think that the reason it comes up in sports is because we're training to a third party standard. Like we're, we're training to a standard that's been set for us, which is why I think that it's important, um, which is why I think it's a good idea for trainers to learn sports, but it's, when you come back down to it, you are not necessarily after precision, but you are after effective change. And so paying attention to all these pieces is really important, really, really Mm -hmm. does matter. Yes. Yeah. And even like Lisa, I'm thinking about, you know, volunteers and even some pet parents and and such like even just holding the food in your hand can can be such a distractor and then you start moving your hand around and Mm -hmm. the dog's following and it's and it's just it's like so confusing for the dog right like right am I getting it Am, am I not getting it where are you delivering it um like even just that just holding on to the to the reinforcement I think can be really confusing for for everyone involved Absolutely. And there, you know, there was one training recipe that I have seen a lot. And that is if the dog jumps up and starts mouthing, you know, we give them the recipe of you want to be ready to reinforce as soon as that mouthing stops. Mm-hmm. And oh right. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> and, this person is like, so when's it going to stop? <laughs> right. Well, no, here's what started happening uh, was that what started happening was that the dog would start mouthing them. So then they would put their hand in their treat pouch. Yeah. It's a chain. It's mm-hmm. literally, yeah. It's just right? to be a chain. Right. And, and putting the hand in the treat pouch serves yep. as a marker. If you are yep. not intentionally utilizing another one. For right. Sure. And so the recipe of reinforcement, as soon as the behavior stops is not necessarily bad, but it's not the whole picture. It's not because if they understood 
that putting their hand in the tree pouch in and of itself was reinforcing the pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then they, all you said, all anybody said, all the recipe says is do it fast. Do it as soon as. Right. Then you, you have to empower this trainer to be able to do it fast without inadvertently reinforcing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is so hard. I mean, like another recipe that we were talking about is like, you know, just ignore barking. It's like, get out of town. <laughs> who, who can do that? <laughs> who can right. do that successfully? And I, I had a client the other day say to me, well, this is what I usually do. I just put my hands over my ears and I just walk away to let him know that, that I am not going to listen to this and that, you know, I'm not going to give him any attention. And, and I said, and yet we're here talking about his increased barking. So I don't know if that's working. Like, would you agree that that's not working? And she's like, yeah, I guess it's not. So I, this whole idea of like, ignore, 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 whatever problematic behavior, you know, how, how, how we're defining problematic. It's not necessarily problematic to the dog, but yeah, I mean, ignoring that behavior and then reinforcing maybe when it stops, like that, that protocol or recipe is- For anything is so unsustainable for it's not sustainable people in front of you it's like it's like if a meal kit delivery service told you to do to like caramelize onions do you know how long it actually takes like (laughs) none of the recipes tell you the truth about no i have absolutely no idea i know more so that you have no idea but i think (laughs) has an idea yeah so um a recipe will say like caramelize onions for 15 minutes and I laugh I laugh in the face of this recipe like right. it takes, 15 minutes. It takes right. like 30 minutes it takes a long time to caramelize onions so like if a HelloFresh or whatever meal kit service said caramelize the onions for about 10 minutes like it would never be right <laughs> no and it's yeah. just, and it's also not sustainable so they they won't tell you to it doesn't call for it if it called for it they'd send you caramelized onions prepackaged because it's not it's yeah because people want convenience like if I'm going to order that something like that I will I'm doing right. it because I want it to be convenient yeah yeah Marissa's I, like thinking of the nightmare already she's like and then you just that's why they're you like here's all this stuff and then now you have to spend 45 minutes caramelizing onion and I'd be right. like get out of town You'd be like get no get there's the door yeah. right meal delivery is faster and a lot that. don't you think that a lot of dog training recipes are like that though they Yes. The lies. They're saying caramelize the onions for 10 minutes. Well, Garbage. I think that's a, that's a great point too. And going back to the example, uh, Marissa's example of ignoring barking and then reinforce the behavior. Ignore is presented as if everybody knows how to do it and everybody knows what mm. that's going to mm-hmm. look like for the dog. We're not, that, that recipe doesn't cover the whole picture. That's the caramelized onions part. If you're not doing the, the quote unquote ignore, and yes, there are all kinds of problems inherent with ignoring and, you know, and increasing frustration and, and all of those things. But (laughs) I use this example a lot. I was one time watching a friend's very fearful papillon and my mom came over and I said, mom, he's fearful. You just need to ignore him. And her version of ignoring was to bend over at the waist and look at him and say, I'm supposed to ignore you, <laughs> but it's really hard. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hashtag moms. That's just a, that's a mom situation right there. Right. Yeah. 
And, um, and so she may have interpreted ignoring is not petting. Right. Right. I'm supposed to ignore you. <laughs> that's so, so funny. And if that was, I, I wonder if she would have done that if that was a large breed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like right. smaller, smaller dog. Did you say Papillon? Papillon. My, yeah. my guess is yes, but <laughs> yes, because she trusts, she would like, she'd be like, Lisa wouldn't put me in a room with something that would maul me. It's fine. So rate super important to keep high, a high rate of reinforcement, super yeah. important to just examine your delivery of reinforcement, which I have actually talked about at length on the podcast before, as it pertains to like sport behaviors. So look at it with your with your behavior modification pieces as well. If you want the dog to go to his, like if you want the dog to leave a trigger, feed them as they leave the trigger. Don't feed them at the trigger. You know, things like that. Like just really think about what behaviors you're producing with the reinforcement because those are getting built into the reinforcement. And then I think it's really important, like Marissa was talking about food in the hands and just the dog starts to get really frantic really frustrated like to to be very clean and kind of deliberate in your delivery too no matter what it is so that it's predictable for the dog one of my pet peeves is i call it mardi gras treats where people just like fling food <laughs> and the dog is like what i don't know where the food went and yeah they, where is it going i'm really frantic um yeah. if you actually want to hype a dog up i want you flinging food like that's so if you want to bring them down and you're feeding on the ground, make sure you're actually deliberate in where you put it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you're on a linoleum floor in a shelter and you want them delivering on the ground, they shouldn't be like dropping a bunch of bouncy kibble that right. goes everywhere like Mardi Gras beads. Mm-hmm. Drop something like cheese or meat that is going to stick to the floor the second you drop it so that they go directly to it. And there it's are- just, those things matter. I love, I'm sorry. I just have to point it out because you do this all the time. Like Mardi Gras beads. You always have these really (laughs) awesome. It's my superpower. Three words or less. (laughs) Punchy statements. It's funny when people don't get it though. I'm like, you know, like Mardi Gras. They're like, like, what do you mean? Anyway, just have to point that out. Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) Um, so I think another thing to talk about though, would be, and these, these things kind of go together is the type of reinforcer and then how motivating operations come into play with that type of reinforcer and motivating operations being all the antecedents that affect whether or not something acts as a reinforcer or not. Like if I have just eaten Thanksgiving dinner, food ceases to be a reinforcer to me. Mm-hmm. For a very short window of time, but for a short window of time, until the pie comes out, until the pie, until the pie is delivered. Um, so that's a motivating operation. Ranking of reinforcers comes yes. into play a lot. Like, mm. um, I like to really examine a situation and ask, "What's the dog really after in this situation?" And can we give it that instead of our contrived reinforcer? Right. So. Um, let's talk, talk a little bit about that, about maybe, maybe times that the type of reinforcer was wrong for the recipe, um, et cetera. We have any thoughts on that? Well, I do, I do like what you just said about like the Mardi Gras beads, like doing harder treats that go everywhere versus something that's going to stick to the floor. 
I just want to point that out that that is also like you know, type, type yeah. of reinforcement example. Um, Absolutely. All these things all go together. Like you can't mm-hmm. have a high rate if you can't handle the treats effectively. So, <laughs> right. I mean, that's a, that's a problem for me. Like I just am consistently working on being able to pull one treat out at a time. It's really hard for me. Like I want to, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, especially cut up deli meat. That is really it's hard impossible. for me. Oh, like, yeah. I, I am like, like yeah. so I wind up just feeding them two pounds of deli meat because I grab such large pieces yeah. of it. Right. So that does right. hurt your ability to, if you are averse to giving them a pound of deli meat, which I'm like, not, but if you are, or the client is, it's going to slow your rate down. The client's mm-hmm. going to be aware of that. The client's going to be like, right. you know, versus clients in particular, like this was $7 a pound smoked turkey from Whole Foods and I can't feed, <laughs> feed dog all of it. Right, yep. right. Um, well, and look, I, I have 20 years of, of being a loyal Red Barn customer mm-hmm. like red barn's fantastic but That's you know the, what like generic dog dog roll the yeah uh, the mis- miscellaneous meat product roll for dogs yes and and but you know what there's times that it dries out and it's too crumbly. crumbly and it sucks yeah and, oh yeah well and know, there's certain that's proteins gonna mess up everything yeah mm-hmm. certain proteins that were not didn't have that consistency yeah yep. oh, yeah yeah i always went for the beef because it actually it stays oh yeah yeah um then i found happy howie's yeah happy howie's superior every day yeah Yeah. (laughs) it does not crumble but also like so i use fresh pet a lot yeah if it's frozen i can handle it easier yes Mm, so if it's frozen then i'm more likely to get one do you get the cat um like the little cat well for ray i do because it's tiny yeah yeah no Um, i love those yeah. So, well, and oh, sorry, Sarah. I was just gonna say, speaking of frozen, I think it is really important for like in terms of a type of delivery is that I have one client that when we were doing scatter feed on the ground, it there was it like it elicited more of that movement, that like frenetic behavior. And we were working on his large feelings around things in his environment. And so it seemed like it would keep him his nervous system and like everything about him, what was, what was really aroused when we were feeding on the ground. Um, and then we tried feeding, like having him lick something and mm-hmm. that actually helped bring him down. So like mm-hmm. frozen, uh, baby food jars and like, th- it also helps him focus on one. It's going to be the jar. Mom's going to deliver it here always. And it's more predictable versus having to find something that was scattered on the ground that, cause more movement and i think basically what we're saying is there there are no ends to your type of reinforcer it needs to work for you it needs to work for the dog you need to be able to handle it and give the dog access to it um, with a high rate of reinforcement and you also it also needs to actually act as a reinforcer which is only going to be true if the correct kind of motivating operations are at play. So, you know, for instance, like if I'm training uh, Felix for husbandry behaviors, I actually use like medium to low value reinforcement for that. Mm -hmm. Because if I use anything better than that for him, like if I go for the fresh pet or go for the chicken or whatever, 
instead of the kibble, he starts to be stressed about this really high stakes scenario that he's in now. Mm-hmm. And he starts to, and how do I know he's stressed? Because his behavior changes, because his behavioral responses to my cues are, are different than they are if I'm just using kibble. And so I think a lot of times we talk about use the highest value thing, the most motivating thing. And that's not always true either, which is why like all dog trainers need literally a certification course and just like food reinforcement, just food reinforcement. I haven't even talked about toys yet or tactile reinforcement or like the, any number of things that could actually be applied. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I was going to say, you know, we're talking a lot about food, but one of the one of the many, many things that Simon has taught me. <laughs> Speaking of arousal, Marissa, um, Simon <laughs> is a dog that gets hyper aroused. And there are situations when we're out and about that this is a dog that will eat anything I can I can pill him um using dry crackers um, he will like, eat anything including glass yes jalapeno peppers jalapeno peppers Lots. lemons um there was that bolt that metal bolt he mm-hmm. swallowed when mm-hmm. he yeah, was a like, puppy he yeah. almost pathologically will eat anything so he, yeah every yeah. everything is food except sushi yeah. um <laughs> so so this just gives you an example of you know simon is very easy to motivate with many types of food but there are situations when uh, he either another dog is, is, was pulling towards him and getting really excited and he was getting excited and he was refusing food. And in that moment, what his motivation was, was fun, was going to play with the dog or mm. greeting someone or doing that. And so in that moment, I had to abandon food. Because it wasn't a reinforcer anymore. And I had to switch to something that was. And what that ended up being was playing tug with the leash. He mm-hmm. will he will ignore, you know, raining meatballs if we're playing tug with his leash specifically. And so, you know, learning that instead of just focusing on a recipe of no reinforce the behavior you want and add distance and do this right like going home and being like I need better food yeah how many people are like you just need better food or I need better or, food or hey yeah, what's, just, what's the best food you use because this yeah or don't food, feed him before right? walks yeah or fast him don't even get yeah. started <laughs> because fasting is a motivating operation if I'm hungrier right. I work more for food yeah. But caveat to me, the real issue being, have we then tipped over into negative reinforcement instead? Mm-hmm. Now are we talking yes. about relief instead yes. of enjoyment, mm-hmm. right? So types of food, rate of food, delivery of food, motivating operations. <laughs> like we have only talked about reinforcement. Yes. So, so important. For and only if you have a deep understanding of it. And only a few factors. We haven't Literally, talked we could about go criteria. On. Yeah, <laughs> we could go. Oh my gosh, criteria is a whole nother. <laughs> this could be another problem. I mean, let's just, we'll record another one. Yeah. But let's talk about antecedents because I do think this is also um, sorely misunderstood when you look at recipes. 
because when you look at the recipe, it, it typically will talk about the relevant antecedent, like the most relevant antecedent that will yep. be true for every dog. Right. I Meaning. feel like it's the dog's behavior. Like I mean, it's basically saying if dogs doing X, do it, y. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it may be though, you know, it may talk about the antecedent of a strange dog appears, a firework mm-hmm. lights sure. off, right? Like it might talk that way, but are we ever talking about the distant antecedent of like, and does, is this dog in pain? Mm-hmm. Does this dog have food allergies? Is this dog's exercise need being met? I mean, this dog's nutrition, right? What's the nutrition looking like talking about antecedents in a real way? I think it's, do you guys agree? It's glossed over. I mean, absolutely. We want to get to the sexy part, which is applying the consequence that makes the behavior change. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you are, if the recipe says, wait for a dog to appear and then feed, but then you have the dog like I, uh, like a client had one time who her stress levels started to spike and she stopped eating as soon as she heard the jingling of collars. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like even, you know, that next level antecedent of, mm-hmm. you know, if we've covered the dog's health and we've covered all of those pieces and now we're looking at what is the dog actually reacting to? Mm-hmm. But the dog hasn't started barking yet. But the recipe says, when you see another dog, when you see another dog, and if that's, and if we're not looking for all of those pieces where the, the antecedent to the dog's stress is actually the sound or have, I'm sure you've both seen cases where scent. Oh yeah. When the dog starts to fire off when you, when we perceive that they have spelled it, that's always the question is how do you know it has Mm -hmm. its sense, right? right? Because we don't. Right. It so, appears to be, though, the person's like, well, the dog was sniffing a tree and suddenly stiffened and started to look for the horizon. Yep. Okay. That's not in the recipe. Right. Right. And how, how do you just apply a basic counter conditioning protocol or classical conditioning protocol to that if we can't smell it? You can't see it. You can't. Right. So now we really have to adjust. So it's, talking about these antecedents as well as like I think that management is like the ugly stepsister that actually deserves (laughs) the limelight like management is actually what we do yeah yes management is just antecedent arrangement yep yes I was gonna say that like I think that um there I don't remember which episodes on my podcast but I have had people email me specifically and say thank you for validating management like that it's okay and it's like i'd like for us to do that again here today because it's like if you are listening because how many of us yeah have felt like a failure after leaving a session because all we gave them was management yeah when actually that's our effing job (laughs) yes and that's what the client wants to do as well right like they want to train the thing like the best answer, like I might have, I was joking with a friend of mine that sometimes I look at a really gnarly case 
and I feel like I'm one of the surgeons on Grey's Anatomy looking like a hideous looking at like a hideous tumor <laughs> and and I'm just like I'm gonna get this and this is how I'm gonna get it and I'm gonna go from this direction and this direction. I'm gonna get it and it's a beautiful night to save lives right like that's how I feel and then in reality the person's like oh, I just feel like we're gonna rehome one of them yeah. right. and I have to be like you know what and that's best for you and that's right? it. yeah, and yeah. That's okay. but we want to <laughs> we want to do all the cool stuff we know we can do yes oh and that reminds me too of when I was when I was first a trainer I was like oh I know all these things and hold on a second let me pull up my binder and on day 47 of my program I learned this really cool thing and I want to implement it right now and and you just told me that you're super busy and that you have three kids and that you're juggling all this stuff and but and I don't care I'm going to show you my resource guarding protocol right it's like no nobody wanted that called a nope, baby right. it's, called the, it's called the toddler will grow and there's a baby gate in the meantime yes right and the frankly the person that does want to do that those you people need are to, cool you need to make them your new assistant yeah like they're <laughs> rare because they're going that's, to be anyway because that's what happens to all of us yeah exactly like, recipe for being yeah. a trainer versus the but, only outlier who was like i'm gonna train dogs instead of like having hell relationship with their dog yeah (laughs) but Um, I think I think we need to yeah I do think we need to acknowledge it I mean I you know I have what a lot of people would probably consider a pretty difficult dog to live with and I also have a a job that takes up a lot of my time and energy and management is is (laughs) it's what keeps us together mm-hmm. right yeah. like do I know how to fix all the things yes I can I can develop those strategies but I'm I've become a whole lot more realistic in that I change the things that I need to and I manage and I manage the rest and that's oh, actually also yeah. being that's being a chef right is yeah. knowing what's a doable recipe and knowing what you just order instead for takeout. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say something about like the modifying behavior versus the managing. It's interesting, Lisa, because how many times have we talked about like you may be feeling like, gosh, I'm just managing it and I'm not actually modifying it. Like you said, like I have the tools to modify. I I feel like this, it's this really beautiful invitation for us to go like management is about acceptance like, here's how the things are. And I'm just going to arrange the environment to like, hopefully make things feel a little bit better for everyone versus modifications, like making a plan, controlling it, like making sure that we have an outcome of, of, of change, like getting out of the discomfort. And it's almost this really lovely invitation for us to embrace management in a way that is like, I don't know. It's like how, how we engage with our world. Like, how can you just accept how your dog is or accept other people and just set things up so that it's successful knowing that like, it's going to be hard at times. Does that ma- am I making sense? You are making sense. And it's also like, to me, well, first of all, I think we also need to acknowledge that sometimes management is behavior modification. Like sometimes sure. just managing the situation. So the thing doesn't happen anymore 
does change the behavior for you over time. Right. Right. Yes. But also, I mean, it's kind of like, it's the same with us. Like, I don't know about you, but um, pandemic hits and I am like in survival mode now. I am like, okay, everything is hard. Mm -hmm. A third of my career came to a screeching halt, more like a half of my career came to a screeching halt. Everything is hard. Situations with my partner's job. I mean, it was just like everything was suddenly a problem. Yep. And I felt like, okay, working on Sarah is going to like take a, yep. Take a back burner. Cause I'm constantly <laughs> embarking on behavior modification for myself. So it's more like, actually that can wait right now. Manage. Yeah. Right now it's okay that you survived right now. It's okay that you got up and you did the things. Management is that. Yeah. Because yeah. like controlling it or trying to modify can be, I mean, trying to modify behavior, whether it's ours or whether it's the dogs or whatever, it can be a little bit like we tend to get grippy about it. Like we know what should be done, how we can do it. And so then we're like gripping to it in order to achieve this like level of perfection when management is just like, yeah, just like, accept where we're at, modify the behavior give yourself some grace. I don't know. Like that, that's yourself some grace. That's what I feel. And I think for our clients, it, that management piece is necessary because no one can be doing BMOD 24 seven. No, they need to have the permission to, to give themselves that break. So Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, when, when we give them a recipe, like this is how you fix the behavior if management isn't the first piece of that recipe so that they know, so that they, they have some relief mm-hmm. and the dog has some relief um, from the beginning, then the, the most perfect recipe in the world isn't going to be successful. Yep. It's totally true. And I, I think you're bringing up a really important part of the antecedent, which is the client. Yes. And mm-hmm. let's just acknowledge the gaping hole in the education for dog trainers. Huge. Which is recognizing client communication. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> there's a reason that people go to university to learn conflict resolution with people. I mean, like clinical psychology requires a lot of school. And then we walk in social work. We're basically social workers mm-hmm. without the training. Yep. Right. And so recognizing that the client is a major part of the antecedent in any given situation, recognizing where they are, meeting them where they are, going with it from wherever they are and trying to get to a shared goal rather than clinging to our recipe that is probably written for, for somebody who is able-bodied, Right. For somebody who can handle whatever treats you're talking about. I mean, I've had conversations with people who have sensory issues that cannot touch deli meat. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so right. here we are. I mean, there are just so many different things that we can't even cover them all. We just need to acknowledge that these are conversations that need to be had. So rather than here, use this, it's, would you be able to use this? And rather than this is how I think you should manage it's, does that feel doable to you? Mm -hmm. How many times in 
our careers, have we fed into that client compliance oh. argument, right? Or that, that complaint? No, we oh, sure, it would be great, mm-hmm. right? It would be great if we just had, you know, if you could just get the, the compliance from the client. I mean, you look in any training discussion group and the conversation is, well, if I you had know, compliance, I'd be having had, a great resolution rate, right? Exactly. And and we're not, as trainers, we're not taught that the problem isn't, I mean, yes, there will be those those clients who will, you know, pay you and take your advice and disregard it 100% because it goes against what they wanted to hear, right? But, but they're actually rare the, because if they reached out to you in the first place, they do want to know. They do. They want Mm -hmm. help. And yeah, so, so yeah, there, there could be, there are those out there. However, I think we really need to be reframing client compliance as lack of trainer communication and flexibility. hundred percent. I stopped complaining about that when I got better at communication. I was just going to say, I'm like, gosh, because I used to say. I haven't complained about that in a long time. Yeah. yeah, I was, I was just going to say that, like, I'm like, when was the last time I complained about that? Like definitely eight years ago. And I think what it didn't, it didn't change that I like attracted really amazing clients. I mean, I do have really amazing clients, but it's not that I attracted a ton of really great clients. It was more that I, I actually focused on myself, like how can I communicate better and how can I become a better trainer period end of story. It's not about like it's not about what the client did or didn't do. I mean, that information is really important for me to then re-modify the plan, right? Um, right. But yeah, it's not about uh, making them wrong. No, and and it's about, you know, they are a learner every bit as much as the dog. Mm-hmm. And if we talk about setting the learner up for success, that includes our clients. And if they're telling us that, you know, they're gone, they're gone 10 hours a day um, at work, and then they have to come home and make dinner for the kids. And, you know, they can really only, you know, practice any sort of um, BMOD like one day a week. You know, I I certainly have had plenty of those clients. And, and um, so it's figuring out, you know, this is where that management comes in and then figuring out ways that we can get them to that end goal. Whether that was, you know, for me, that was offering not necessarily day training, but almost like dog walking services um, that were slightly higher than an average dog walker, but not as much as a private lesson where I could be getting the dog that work during the week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then on weekends, the client had more time to practice so we could make faster progress. That's the meal kit, sending you the caramelized yes. onions in a Dude, packet. this metaphor yeah. is just <laughs> taking us through the whole and, episode. <laughs> and you know what was beautiful? Like, I still don't know what caramelized onions are. <laughs> um, what was beautiful about that was I was able to do that at a time that most clients couldn't meet me anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't losing money. I was making money and I was helping the client and that ended right. up being my favorite thing to do was taking on those clients. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think if we, if we get out of the, you know, I think recipes kind of come in, in the form of the services we offer too. 
You know, I think, I think as trainers, we are told you can do this model, you can do the day training model, or you can do this, and this is how it should be structured. And if we, if we get too rigid with that, we could be missing out on pieces as well. Yeah. It's actually look at this case, what treatment protocol do they actually need? Like what is a, like, I have people ask me for a one-time consultation who I'm like, there's no way that's going to work for you. Like, there's no way talking to me for 90 minutes is going to be enough for you. And so I, you know, I don't do it. I I talk to them about my other stuff or, you know, my private coaching, which is an ongoing thing that they kind of pay by the month. Very limited. I don't have spots open often. And when I do though, it's not right for everybody. And I try to vet them to make sure that it is right for them before I Mm -hmm. take them in. And I think that's so important for us to do. So rather than being like, well, here's how I work and here's where you can enroll, vetting them a little bit more to make sure that they're being put into the right service. And then if you don't have the right service for them, sending them to somebody else, which is easier than ever to do now because everybody learned how to be virtual Mm -hmm. or they they closed the doors. I mean, that's basically where we are now. You've either learned how to be virtual or you close the doors. So I send people all over the country to, you know, a, a colleague in one isolated place. Like it's, it just is that way now. And I think it's so important to look at all of those pieces and know that your recipe is worthless if the person you're handing it to is helpless to carry it out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, should you send your client here or knowing when to refer out or telling your client, you know, you need more than you need more than just an initial consult. Like all of that, I think also does come with practice. Like I still Mm. struggle with that. And I have had my private practice since 2011. It's always been part-time and maybe that's probably why I don't have enough data to support, you know, when do I send a client out? When do I not like all of that? And I think that what I have committed to in the past few years is really reaching out to other trainers. And I mean, both of you have been a a, a tremendous um, resource to me in terms of becoming more confident in saying, yeah, like this, this is not going to resolve. Right. Like I, I think when you first start out as a trainer, you're like, Oh my gosh, we're going to modify everything and it's going to resolve and all the things. Right. And so I think, um, getting more confident and saying like, yeah, I'm really concerned about A, B, and C, and here's why, and this is why we're going to do D, E, and F. Like all of that does come with practice. And I think building a really strong community around you and, and reaching out to other trainers and asking the questions and being really vulnerable about that. Um, That's where the true growth happens. I think you bring up a really good point about you know, something else about recipes that we haven't really talked about is that a recipe says this is how to fix it. At least that's how they're presented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're not discussing that enough, that there are just behaviors you're not going to fix. You can improve, you can, you can increase tolerance, you can teach better coping skills but you know to hand to hand a recipe either to a a new dog trainer 
it, you know, some of the recipes that are out there in the books. This is how you modify resource guarding, mm-hmm. right? You follow these steps exactly. None of those are saying you're never going to stop the dog from biting yep. if their stress levels reach this point, right? But you can increase how much they can tolerate before that so that it becomes a more manageable situation. And I think that's one of the things, whether it's the recipes that are fed to trainers or the recipes we give to clients, we need to be very clear that it's not, it's not a recipe for fixing a problem. Mm-hmm. Because it's not actually, it's not an electronic yeah. Right. And that brings right. us back to antecedents. The reason there isn't a recipe to fix is because there are too many moving parts. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's, if the dog, let's say the dog is largely repaired as far as resource guarding is concerned, hasn't had an incident in three years. Then the couple decides to have a child. Then as the child becomes a toddler, the dog develops spinal arthritis because dog's older and now we're just in a different ball game now right mm-hmm. it's yeah. the because we're talking about living beings and not only the dog but also the people involved right that's why it's not you know do this and it's fixed and right. I think we we do have to be better about communicating those things yeah I think um and I will sometimes I really work on what what, what does the client say or what, how do they show up that causes me to then go, Oh shoot, I need to fix it for them. And and then I wind up like spinning out in my sessions. I think it's so critical for us as trainers to be really cognizant of like, what causes us to engage in behaviors or say certain things in order to maybe people please, or, or, Um, not want to say the hard truth that we might need to say to this client. Like I have had to really focus on um, like, oh, wow, you want everyone to like you, Marissa. Okay. Well, like (laughs) that is sometimes not beneficial in your role. And that's an antecedent that needs to be considered. Right. right, Yep. Part of the antecedent now. So I'm like, and did I jump to a solution, like a quote unquote solution to hopefully give this person something that they think that that is a solution and then I'll be liked like or am I really here trying to help the dog right and like actually say the hard truth like we have we have a big job as behavior consultants and trainers and like you said Sarah is a gaping hole in education in terms of like all of this internal personal growth work where like what what, when do we start judging the client? When do we start like, um, judging ourselves? When did like, and then what happens because of all of that? Like all of that is critical to be aware of. And knowing ourselves, I don't know about you two, but I am also at a point where I know what kind of client I get along with best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know I can almost tell right away if this is not going to be a person that I can engage in like a long-term situation with. Right. And I'm actually, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you need to help everybody. Like you need to get over that and help everybody. And I just disagree. I think that I am best serving my clientele. If I make sure this is a person I actually feel like I can help. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think the pressure is there. I mean, when you're a, a new trainer, you're poor. So you you're take poor. everyone. Let's yeah. just say it like it is. I took yeah. everyone, whether I liked them or not, or whether I even thought I could help them or not, because I right. didn't afford to feed myself. Mm-hmm. And then we also put that pressure on ourselves of if I don't take this this client, this like I'm I'm hearing all sorts of red flags about this part, you know, when I'm having these conversations. But if I don't take them, then they're going to go to, you know, Joe Trainer up the street, and you know, he's yeah. he's just ruined like eight dogs this year. So I have yeah. to take it. I yeah. just got an email about that. Somebody was asking me how I cope with, you know, if somebody doesn't want to focus on wellness first, for instance, because I do, how I cope with them going to the trainer that I don't agree with down the road because they didn't want to do my wellness protocol. Mm-hmm. I literally let that go so long ago. I just had to. You yeah. do. And it's hard. It, it feels... Like, I think when I was a a younger trainer and I would hear someone, you know, a more seasoned trainer say that it would feel like it would feel callous. Yeah. Like, well, they don't care as much as I do, but it's, it's, it's not that at all. It's, it's caring every bit as much. You're just protecting yourself so you can help. You can continue to help the ones that you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to, I think it's a good place to kind of start to wrap. And I have a, something that I actually heard from Kathy Sadeo, but she heard it from Steve White. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> um, which is, it's easy to remember that it was from Steve White because it's SW yep. and it's SW times four and it's some will, some won't. So what someone's waiting. Oh, wow. I, think I haven't that- heard that. All the time. Yes, all the some time. Will, some won't, so what? Someone's waiting. And I think so professional to professional, if you're a professional think, listening to this, that's the message is it yeah. is perfect. It's not only okay, but it is the right choice for you to move on to the next client. But I think in, you know, in summary, we're talking about it is important to It can be an important part of your education to learn those recipes, but if you don't understand the basic principles behind the recipes, you won't be as successful. And so when you find the recipes not working and you maybe don't understand why, go back to the basics. Mm -hmm. Ask, what don't I understand here? And we could have talked for like four or five more hours about basics. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. We're going (laughs) to, we're going to not do that today. (laughs) Is there anything else that either of you would like to add? Okay. Now, thank you both so much. This was such a rich conversation that I think everybody is going to enjoy. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.